Hello and welcome to Zero Today. I am your humble host, Dr. Lorenzo Dio, hailing from Cajun Land, USA, here to present you with seeds of wisdom, insight, empowerment, and liberation, promoting a knowledge that's engaging and transforming and empowering you, our listeners, to knowing and impacting the world around you. And as always, you're welcome to join us on this illuminating journey. Several ways you can do so. Follow us on all our social media, particularly the Facebook page, the Zero Network on Facebook. Also on Twitter, at Zero Radio is the Twitter handle. My personal handle is at Lorenzo T. Neal. And we're also available on our website, LorenzoTNeal.com. Thank you so much for thinking it not robbery to join us on this great day this is the day the lord has made you ought to be glad about it i'm glad about it everybody's glad about it i hope you're glad about it if you're not find something to be glad about (laughs) you're alive you have friends you're stuck but you're eating good (laughs) you're watching good tv shows whatever it is you can find something to be glad about on this great day now you know i don't talk about politics much but it's election season, it's convention season, and right now the Democratic National Convention is convening uh, virtually, although I have not watched it. I, when I was a kid, I watched, up until my young adult years, I watched both conventions. I was just awed by how well it, you know, the the appearance of it was. I loved hearing the speakers and all of that, and I've been privileged to attend two uh, conventions, both a Republican and a Democrat National Convention, not as a delegate, but uh, just as a as an attendee. And being in those spaces, I was just, I mean, I was floored. I loved it. <laughs> the chaos, the organized chaos. Um, and it, it's, it's always a wonder. And I hate that they can't do it the way that they usually do it because of Corona. And maybe that is what's contributing to it being kind of boring. <laughs> But I've been at several conventions this year, conference this year that been virtual, and I ain't gonna lie to you, they've all been boring <laughs> because it's that in-person interaction and engagement that really makes conventions and conferences what they are. And a virtual conference or convention, it's just boring. You know, you're tuned out. You're there, but you're really not there. You you know you don't have to stay in the space the whole time, <laughs> come and go. And then, you know, because it's being recorded and part of it's pre-recorded, you can always go back and watch whatever you missed. And, yes, that's what I've been doing for some of these, <laughs> these meetings and conferences. But, anyway, you're well aware of Joe Biden's uh, nomination. He's to be be formally nominated later this week. I think it's on Thursday. Um, and he has picked his his nominee for vice president, and that's the person of Kamala Harris. And I'm going to be honest with you. I do not believe that it's a good choice, but I'm not a pundit. Uh, I really have a stake in this, in this fight. The only thing I can encourage people to do is vote and vote their, their principles. And their values, that's that's all I encourage, you know. And if you're not registered to vote, go and vote. But there's a general consensus that uh, that may not have been the best pick. And I know a lot of people are now rallying behind uh, Kamala. And, and there, there are some who are making a general uh, prediction that uh, they they know Biden won't serve the full term and 
So this is backup for him. Basically saying that Kamala is going to uh, eventually, she's going to be, if, if Biden wins the presidency, that he won't be in there long and that uh, she will eventually become uh, president, the first female president, the first um, person of color president, all of that. Yeah, now that's speculation. That that that's not exactly what's going to happen. That's that's just a speculation, mostly from people on the, uh, the conservative side. Um, but who knows? I, I I just know from watching the debates and seeing her presidential run, it wasn't a successful one. She didn't come across as likable, and of course, there's her record that they used while she was the uh, state attorney general for California and uh, her her prosecution history. But that's neither here nor there for me. I'm just saying the convention, matter of fact, this whole election cycle has just been, it's just been boring. The entire election cycle, beginning with the uh, Democrats in the late, 2017 as they begin to make their announcement. I mean, 2018 as they made their announcements and 2019 as they went through and campaigned and debated and it was just boring. There was nothing exciting about it. And I can say the same thing about uh, the 2016 election cycle with the president on the Republican side. Uh, I think the closest who came to adding excitement <laughs> other than Trump, Donald Trump with his, his responses, uh, uh, probably was Newt Gingrich before he dropped out. Maybe John Kasich. I don't know. And Kasich is now. Uh, I think he spoke at the or he yeah he spoke virtually at the Democratic convention. I don't know if he supported Biden or not. I didn't watch. I didn't care to watch <laughs> because for those who are conservatives, he's a traitor. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but you know he's a sore loser. He's to Trump and. Um, he he's now betraying the Republican Party, <laughs> but hey, he's out of politics as far as I understand. So he can endorse whoever he wants to and speak for whatever he wants to. Hey, that's the way it goes. But anyway, I just hope, I just hope that people are not fooled that they see through all of this, whether you're Republican or in conservative, libertarian. Or you're a Democrat, you're moderate, or you're liberal, or you're progressive. Wherever you are, I hope you can just see through all the smoke and mirrors and make a choice that uh, you think would be able to fit this country. Uh, for, but for the most part, this this election cycle has been pretty boring. I mean, the 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 midterm election had more excitement than this one, and that's truth. And we saw the results of that. Uh, with this new Congress, uh, these freshman congressmen who came in and they started knocking down walls <laughs> and tearing it down. And they were doing things that was uh, stifled for a long time in Congress. They they came and knocked it down and they had a large number of women and large number of minorities. And it, it's, it was wonderful. Now, most of them came from the Democratic Party. And, of course, you know about the squad. Uh, the four ladies, uh, 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 more prominence from that class, 
And there's only really one person out of that class that I really just, you know, throw my hat behind. That's uh, Representative Lucy McBath because of her work with gun violence prevention. And I just, I love her. She's a wonderful person. She's been fighting hard uh, in this issue of gun violence prevention since her son was killed in the act of gun violence. And if you have never seen her or heard her speak, you ought to see. Uh, she's in a documentary. Um, I can't think of the name of it. It's in my library. But anyway, uh, Lucy McBath is one I, I, I uh, definitely support. Anyway, um, so I just hope that once this convention ends, people, I hope they come to one conclusion. Of course, they're going to throw the hat. But I hope that they really push, if they're if they're serious about these two candidates, that they really push. And these candidates find um, a, a ground, uh, a similarity or a consensus for this country. And as the Republican National Convention meets later on this month, or whenever they meet, that um, yes, Trump is already presumptive nominee, but that they move beyond this Trumpism, and um, they have a major opportunity with this election to not only uh, if they push hard enough to get Trump reelected, but uh, with all this going on, they can rise to the occasion with minority voters, with the issues like. Um, gun violence prevention and of course their their probably biggest one is going to be backing the blue or whatever it is blue lives matter i don't know but the the entirety of of their conservative values can be put in place to show that they are not just uh trumpers <laughs> i don't know if that's a word or not, but to show that they are people who are genuinely concerned about the soul of this country and that's what um the speakers from last night as i understood uh said that biden can restore the soul of america well i i don't know if he can i know the lord can <laughs> and the lord can use us who are sincere about uh, serving this present age our calling to fulfill to restore the soul of this country but that's neither here nor there uh, whatever you do, if you're watching the campaign, whoever you support, whatever party you're affiliated with, um, make sure you vote. That's the important thing. Get out to vote. Encourage people to register to vote, especially these young people, uh, and be educated and informed about not just who's running for president, but also other things that may be on the ballot in your uh, municipality, you know. Maybe having state uh, state elections, representatives. You may have other initiatives that are on the ballot. I know here in Mississippi, uh, the vote for our new state flag will be on the ballot, and that's going to be important. So either way, be informed, be empowered, be engaged, and vote. Take a quick break, and before I get into the break, I want to introduce what we're going to talk about today. I, I want to talk about today the black lives and uh the black narrative of uh of efficacy and the, you know there's there's 
uh, a narrative of an efficacy uh, that's going around regarding black lives and uh, it's propelling a whole lot of ignorance for both black folk and non-black folk and I just want to talk about that and the role of the church in perpetuating this I, this this narrative and how we can change this narrative and be more empowering and engaging that that's that's what we're about so that's what we're going to talk about right after this break <music> Mic check one, mic check one, two, three, four, five. Mic check one, mic check one, two, three, four, five. You may find it hard to believe, but at one point in your life, you're going to need access to reliable legal services. Legal issues can be confusing, complicated, and even a bit embarrassing. That's why I joined the family at Legal Shield. Legal Shield offers the most affordable, comprehensive legal coverage available. And for a small monthly fee, I have access to Legal Shield's personal plan that includes attorneys who will represent me and provide me advice, even draft and review documents on my behalf. Not only do they provide excellent legal service, but with their ID Shield, I'm also guaranteed protection from all fraud, including identity theft protection. Did I mention to you I have so many perks and benefits that come with being a member of Legal Shield? Yeah, they pretty much cover the plan by itself. For the last 45 years, 
Americans have trusted Legal Shield for all their legal needs, and I'm glad that I've joined them. So give them a call. Visit their website, www.legalshield.com. I'm telling you, you will be glad that you did. I'm Dr. Lorenzo Neal, and I like to speak with my fellow clergy about a way to enhance your life and ministry. Are you looking to better connect with yourself and those you minister to? When was the last time you explored your emotional intelligence and health? I want to offer you my service as a coach and counselor. I've developed a six-week coaching program with a specific focus on self-differentiation. My background in education, leadership, and community counseling psychology gives me a unique look into the connection between our emotional wellness and our ministry. Blending spiritual principles with a family system's approach to ministry, I will help you become a highly self-differentiated person with a ministry that is engaging liberating and transforming contact me at pastorlorenzoneal at gmail.com to schedule your first session with me i'm looking forward to hearing from you and working with you to serve this present age and to fulfill and engage all yourself to do your master's will blessings All right, welcome back. This is Dr. Lorenzo Neal, and I'm glad that you thought it not, Robert, to join me today for this discussion. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I want to talk about black lives and the black efficacy narrative. And if you don't know what the word efficacy means, that's what we're going to be talking about. <laughs> we're going to break down that word. We're going to talk about the narrative of this this idea of what a black people really capable of doing and um, this idea that was br first brought to us by the uh, the great uh, W.E.B. Du Bois with this idea of double consciousness and and then uh, brought back to my to my um, attention uh, by uh, John McWhorter in his writings and particularly uh, one of his books uh, he has Two books that I have in my my library, "Losing a Race," and the other one is um, "Authentic Blackness" or something like that. Uh, uh, authentic Blackness. Anyway, both of those kind of brought to my were brought to my attention, and I it made me think about what's the value of Black lives, and why is that value the way it is as being portrayed in the media narratives and the Black Lives Matter movement, global movement and all of that. What does that have to do to the individual and the collective value of black lives? And um, so that that's what I want to really talk about. So to give you an idea what what I mean by efficacy. Efficacy is the ability to produce a, an expected result. So um, that that's that's 
basically what efficacy is. And you see it in medicine and uh, when they talk about uh, clinical trials, when they talk about medicine, you know, pharmacy pills and the pharmaceutical company and the efficacy of particular drugs, that is their ability which they want to see a particular result. So they do these clinically clinical trials and, and you know, they want to see a, a, a specific outcome or the, the hope, you know. And uh, those of you who have done any type of scholarly work, if you've done, even if you've done a survey or whatever, uh, any kind of data collection, data research, and you, you, you understand that you also want to see some kind of, uh, you have, you go into it with an expected outcome and you're going to see those results based on the hypothesis or the, uh, uh, or, you know, null hypothesis. You, that's, that's basically how research works. That's how the scientific methods work. That's how basically everything regarding gathering information, empirical data, empirical information, that's how it works. But efficacy is also uh, in um, sociology. And in sociology, you have uh, social constructs that basically, and we've, we've made those social constructs into what we would call race and, and all, all of that. We, we class, race, ethnicity, these constructs, social constructs that we have created uh, it has a, an efficacy that comes with it. And this, so to further break that down, you have the uh, self-efficacy and you have a collective efficacy and all of these are within the sociological perspective uh, uh, ways of getting data on human behavior, human interactions, interpersonal uh, relationships, all of that. That's just a way of, of gathering information. And you can thank um, uh, who's, who's uh, one of the leaders in this idea of efficacy when it comes to self and collective. I, I want to say it's Ben. Uh, shoot. Hold on, let me. Uh, Albert Bandura. I knew I was. I, I quoted him in some of my research while I was working on both my masters and doctorates. Um, he he's this this uh, professor at Stanford who pioneered what we would consider the field of cognitive psychology. He uh, he 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 is the one who put all this basically idea of social psychology and philosophy or psychology of action, all of this stuff, he, he put it in there. And um, he has a theory uh, that we, uh, if you're in the field of education, you probably have heard this field, or if you're in the, in the field of human development, you've heard this, uh, the social learning theory. And the social learning theory, uh, basically, at one point, we were taught that uh, in education, in my human growth and development class when I was in undergrad, we were told that humans uh, develop by by not just uh, not just by their environment. So the, their environment and their their uh, family of origin contribute primarily to the behavior and all this aspect. You know, the identity of self, their self-esteem, all that. Uh, but Bandura, and I, I may be massacring his name, he, he developed this other 
theory, which is basically saying that it's not a, a result of direct conditioning. You know, we talk about uh, one of the um, Maslow and um, what's the other guy? Uh, yeah. Anyway, there there are social conditioning experiments that they that they they said that uh, that humans experience and and basically you you, you know. You learn through reinforcement, through conditioning, and through punishment. That's how you basically learn. And he, 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 he said no. Bandura uh, basically said no. Uh, it's that's not how we generally uh, learn. We learn um, basically by observation, through observation, and through uh, uh, imitation, and through. Um, uh, modeling, yeah, through modeling. I, I'm going off the top of my head here. I I, I know I could Google this, uh, but again, because I I, I use some of his uh, his uh, works and his his um, papers in 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 some of my studies, I I thought you know I should know a little bit more. <laughs> I'm rusty, but it, but anyway, the idea of social conditioning now comes from. Uh, this idea of uh, learning behaviors, learning, um, learning not just behaviors but attitudes and all this stuff is it, it comes not just through the traditional methods that we talked about first. You know, you, you get stimulated to do right or wrong, and you get punishment, and that punishment is to either reinforce you to stay within the status quo or to recondition you. To, to do you know to better and he said no most most individuals his theory asserts that um, we learn by observation through imitation and modeling and if there's a there's if there was ever a time that this is more accurate it's now because I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you I believe much of what we're seeing when it comes to this black lives global movement the, the Black Lives Global Movement, is because people are wanting to be on the side that they believe is right. And unfortunately, those who are more uh, uh, left-leaning, more progressive, the idea is that they present ideas and they present... Um, they they present a construct a social construct that is that comes across as better than the traditional conservative social construct you know so when they're talking about fighting against the patriarchy and uh, dismantling the neutral uh, the uh, nuclear family and and that is actually on the Black Lives Global Matter Global Movement website that's that's what they believe this is what they push and they're in integrating all the intersectionality that you can imagine. And so people want to believe that uh, when it comes to three words, equity, inclusion, and diversity. That, that's, that's, the, that's the thing. Equity, inclusion, and diversity. And what I am all for those words. It's praxis that's the problem, man. This is where, this is where we're finding this, this, this massive... And I do mean the word massive. This is this massive uh, 
mess, and that probably is the best word I can find for it right now. The idea that there is insufficient diversity, insufficient equity, and insufficient, uh, what was the other one? Uh, inclusion. Particularly for black folk. And it's this idea that uh, I believe honestly, and, and this is from my own engagement with uh, non-black people, the idea that black folk can't do enough for themselves, so we therefore must act on their behalf so that they can in turn enjoy the full benefits of the privilege that we as non-blacks have at our disposal. And on the on the top layers that does sound good but the problem is it disravels it unravels the nearly 50 to 60 years of work that has been put into to ensure that this what is happening now would not be necessary so you had your you had your uh, affirmative action you had your um equal opportunity and, and, you know all that stuff develop over this time to ensure that incidents of inequity, incidents of indiversity, and incidents of non-inclusion would not be occurring. And yet we see it is still occurring because you know think about just a few years ago, Oscars too white. Or something to that nature. I can't remember exactly, but that was that was the argument that the Oscars were too white. There there weren't enough black or uh, people of color uh, in the presentations. You know, the speakers and presenters, and not enough uh, uh, people of color and black nominated for awards. And the only exception to this is in the field of the arts specifically performing arts more specifically uh hip-hop and uh athletics where there is the exception it is expected that black men and women or people of color are able to exceed in those particular areas and they don't need our help as much to succeed in that area because the uh you know if we look at overall even though for example, we know that most professional sports, particularly American sports, let me be more specific, American sports like uh, football and basketball, American popular sports, are dominated by uh, blacks and people of color or blacks. So you have about 75 to 80 percent of all college football players and uh, basketball players and uh, professional basketball players and professional football players, American football players, who are black. And those are the exceptions. But when you look at that same thing and then you apply it to STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, you don't see that. Although there are exceptions, you know, we, 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 we see exceptions as as something spectacular so when we see a kid get um, accepted to an Ivy League school it's still 
for the most part in many black communities, it's still something amazing. Uh, you know, when the only opportunity just not even 60 years ago, the only opportunity they had was to go to an HBCU. That was it. They did, you know, if you did go to, in particular, an Ivy League school, it was the exception, not the norm. Whereas now it's become more of the norm. And by the norm, I mean there's still that top-tier student who uh, uh, was black who can get in. And it's not no longer, you know, like I said, we still celebrate it. But we now know that we have access to it without affirmative action, even though affirmative action does have its role. But we know now that our, our, our kids can achieve exceedingly without any other help yeah and, and and that's a good thing that's something we should be celebrating right unfortunately when we can't celebrate it because we see these chi these kids who make it into these uh pwis and more particular uh, uh the, the prestigious pwis pwi i mean predominantly white institutions of higher learning higher education so you know those students at Yale, at Harvard, or Stanford, or uh, any other you can name, Brown, these really high, uh, uh, you know, profile universities, when, when they do get there, they still feel discriminated against. And there's, you know, there are always microaggressions. That you can't avoid microaggressions, and, and I wish... You know, when I was in grad school and I was the only black in my department, one is I experienced a whole lot of microaggressions. And, you know, I didn't make a big deal out of that because I knew what I was there, f what I, why I was there, what I was there for, and that was it. It didn't matter to me that I'm, I'm going to be the only black man in the class. <laughs> and I, I share this quite a bit. There was this, there was this older white lady when, when I was in one class, and, um, Again, I'm the only black in this department and in, in this area, too. So this white lady comes to me after doing a break in the class. We weren't, uh, I think we was taking a break, and she came to me, and she's like, she told me, these are her exact words, you intimidate me. And I, I didn't understand what she meant by that. And she said, you you intimidate me. You're not like the other blacks that I see on this campus. And I'm like, whoa, what do you mean I'm not like the other blacks you see on this campus? Because, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I didn't differentiate myself. I was a grad student. This lady already had a doctorate degree, by the way. She already had a doctorate degree. She was just taking this course just to be able to take, you know, just to add, beef up her resume, I suppose, anyway. Now, mind you, this is uh, uh, almost 20 years ago, and I, I didn't understand. I'm like, how do I intimidate you? She's like, well, you're articulate, and you're writing. Uh, this was a, a rhetorical theory in, uh, class. You're writing and all of this. You, you're just not like any other black person, you know, student I've met on this campus. And I'm like, okay, and I left it alone. I, I didn't care about her comment because I didn't care about what she thought. I didn't care that I intimidated her. Matter of fact, it made me feel good that I intimidated her. I don't know why, but 
<laughs> I I was there and I was succeeding in what I was doing. That that was it because I had been uh, I had been conditioned to believe that I could do anything. I I was conditioned. Now I had gone through predominantly black elementary school, uh, junior high school, high school, and I went to HBCU. And this was my first time really in an environment where there was uh, at this PWI where I I I felt out uh, you know I felt out of place but I did not let that deter me and I I said all that because this this idea of efficacy what black folk should be able to do and should not be able to do I, I'll give you uh an example when when um a lot of states, particularly here in the South, began to roll out uh, voter ID legislation requiring all voters to have a mandatory ID. And they gave the plethora of lists with an ID considered. And the people who are and fighting against this, and I couldn't understand. I'm like, everybody should have an ID, some form of ID, you know. Uh, and the people who were who were countering this this legislation we're saying well uh, black people can't get access to all of these things they may not be able to get access to a birth certificate they may not be able to get access to this other uh, you know certain documents that be necessary to get uh, an, an ID and even in the states that took that in consideration and laid out even more things that could be used as reputable uh, identification sources these people still fight and still promote this narrative that black folk can't get it. Black folk don't have access to it. And and I was watching on several, <laughs> a couple of YouTube now. This is not uh, verifiable evidence, empirical evidence, but just watching on some YouTube channels, mostly conservative, of course, because they're, they're the ones who want to counter this, this, this claim, uh, you know, regarding voter fraud and all this stuff. So it, it turns out that when questioned, most of the black people's like, hey, I have the I, I have the access to that and I have an ID, you know, I have a driver's license, I have a state issued ID or you know, I have something I can present to verify my I, uh, my identity without any uh, infringement upon my right to cast my vote and that narrative is still being pushed um, and regarding black lives um, the narrative is for the most part those non-black people have this general consensus of what black people what black is and now we're, we're it <laughs> what's really funny is over the last uh at least the last year and a half, we've been having a discussion about what is authentic blackness. What is who's black and who's not black? For example, you know you're black when you're a Democrat and you you fall in line with Democrat ideas and you you know you vote D down the line. You're black, but you're not black when you may not. Be Democrat, may not be Republican, but you think independently, like myself. I think independently. I'm, I'm an independent person. I'm, I'm, I'm more um, center right, 
that's just where I am. That's just where I was, you know. I don't know exactly how I became center-right. You know, I followed the example. This goes back to this conditioning, you know. I was raised by my grandparents. They were conservative. <laughs> when I say, when I use the word conservative, I'm not talking about just politically. Uh, they voted Democrat. Uh, as far as I know, they voted Democrat. I, I don't, you know. And I remember when they were still giving out the tickets. They say, when you go vote, this is the ticket. And that's how they used to do it in the black communities back in the day. This is the ticket. You just, you know, you can't take it into the poll with you, but you need to know. You learn this ticket, and that's all you need to know. When you go there, this, this, this is the ticket, and that's how you vote, right? And a lot of blacks are now being red-pilled. And I've been, I've been watching a lot of this, these uh, walk-away events uh, and people who are saying they're walking away from the liberal party or democrat party whatever leaving the plantations the corn and getting off the plantation as well as red peeled republicans <laughs> and moderates and all of this all of this the the whole of the matter is we were discussing what what is what makes you black now when it comes to me when it comes to me as I say before I would be considered black until I express something that is considered as non-black. I remember when uh, when the orchestra was started out of school, and every every uh, well not every but the predominantly white school in our school district had an orchestra already, but there was no orchestra at the two other predominantly black schools. No orchestra. Now we had marching bands and we could shake out behind. We had uh, symphonic bands, and we did well in that, but we did not have string. And so you know, myself and several others, we signed up, and, and I took on violin and viola. I learned both of them, right? And I would play with the youth symphony, and I, I went between violin, one, you know, I played violin one season, and I played trombone the next season. I, and I kind of fluctuated between that while I was a part of the youth symphony. But the thing was, when they saw those of us who were black not playing horns, you know, playing strings, we would get the looks. We would get the looks. Now there would be there would be plenty of blacks in there, but those of us who were on the strings, and you can count as only you know you can count on one hand those who were playing the strings versus those who were playing uh, you know horn instruments or, or percussion. <laughs> And we would get the looks like, oh, wow, look at that. As if that was something blacks didn't do or couldn't do. And, you know, I went on to college on a band and orchestra scholarship. And that led me to other opportunities to play with uh, varying degrees of success, musical success. And eventually, I fancied myself being a, a, a conductor. <laughs> so when... When I graduated, I, I went performing with various ensembles, chamber groups. You know, I was like, well, I could do this. I could become a an orchestra conductor, and that's what I did. So I was going to be like, not only am I going to conduct, but I'm going to compose music. So I, I spent my time becoming, you know, engrossed in music composition, and I'm going. I was. I was creating art songs, and I was creating, you know, symphonies, and I, 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 I was writing concertos for, for string and quintet or quartet and brass, you know, chamber, and I was doing all this. And that was stuff, you know, 
black weren't supposed to do. And then I learned about other black composers in the classical genre who, you know, were spectacular and very successful in what they were doing. And I had the opportunity to study with composers uh, and, 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 and people, uh, one in particular, Dr. Quincy Hillier. I had the opportunity to study under him and pick his brain. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, I can do this. But the average band director, because I was a band director at the time, uh, uh, all we were basically conditioned to do was, hey, if you're a black band director, then your band, particularly if it's at a predominantly black school, you're supposed to be in the marching style of those schools. So in my area at the time, where I was in South Louisiana, it was Southern University. Or in my hometown, it was Grambling State University. And that's what we emulated. And, and for most, most of my band, director, band directing career, and that's, you know, that's fine. That's what I did. My students enjoyed it. I, it brought back flashbacks, and I had to show them I still had it. You, you know how it is. <laughs> uh, but it was this, I, this, this idea of what, what was authentically black. And brings me back to the uh, book I mentioned before, John McWhorter has the book called Authentically Black. And listen to what he says um, about this. The, with whites, he, he talks that whites who are more liberal, uh, he said, the white left see their enshrinement of racial preferences and open-minded, open-ended welfare and their recasting of the black criminal as a rebel as proof that they are not racist. But these positions superficially humane deny African Americans the incentive to strive for the best within us and even have a way of teaching us through the back door that being an also ran is a heart is the heart of being authentically black. As such, what passes for enlightenment enlightenment becomes in its way races all over again and he carries on this thought when um when he talks about black folk and when it comes to black people he says this uh black people from the right perspective he says black people need to just get real and put up a shut up uh or or it won't happen by itself right and the left believe that black people can only achieve what society what society is perfect. And until then, they are heroes. This is what he says of white privileged leftists and progressives, liberals, whatever you want to call them. That, uh, he, he said from their perspective, the black person who gets out of bed is a hero. The black person cannot succeed until the society in its totality is perfect and we know that will never happen there will never be a utilitarian uh, utopian society where everybody uh, egalitarian society it's not going to happen history has tried and we, we we see it does not work no matter how much we try but let me uh, I digress so this feeds over to this I the, the idea of what is black what is what is what is black as stated before, you know, I went to a, uh, I started out as a, in, in a predominantly, I, you know, a, a blackhead start, 
black elementary school and then went to an, an integrated elementary school because of busing. We had to go to integrated elementary school. Um, and then from there, uh, all the whites who were supposed to be going to junior high with us, most of them ended up going to the predominantly white schools. Um, and, and in my hometown, we had two different school districts. <laughs> and that was literally because of desegregation. So white folk didn't want it to be black folk. Uh, all right. We started our own school system. And they did. They started an entire different school system. And a lot of the private schools were started because of that. But anyway, I digress. So I went to a predominantly black junior high school where it was predominantly black faculty. You know, you may have two or three white teachers, predominantly black high school, again, where predominantly black staff, faculty, where, again, you may have five or six white teachers. Uh, and then, from there, I went on to a HBCU. Now, this was, <laughs> this difference between my high school and HBCU is while we did, again, have majority black faculty, you also had a very diverse faculty. I mean, I had teachers from Africa. I had teachers from Bangladesh. I had teachers from India. I had teachers from all varied broad backgrounds. And we even had a Baha'i faith club. If you know what Baha'i is. <laughs> you know. And the leader of the Baha'i faith club was you know, faculty sponsor. He was from uh, he was Middle Eastern. I'm not Middle Eastern. He was uh, uh, Asian from from the Indian area, you know, either Pakistan, one of those areas over there. Anyway, but the president, uh, the face of the club was a white guy named Jeff. And I'll never forget Jeff because Jeff was also the RA for our dorm. Now, mind you, this is a white guy at the HBCU. <laughs> Leading a Baha'i faith uh, club, and and because he was Baha'i, he bought into everything. So he come to church with us, and I, I tell you, he come to church with us. He sang in the gospel choir when he, you know, when when he felt like it. But that <laughs> that just threw me off. I had a roommate, Boris Toledo. My uh, one of my roommates in college was from uh, Guatemala, and he came. And uh, he said, the Lord must be calling me to ministry because every roommate that I've had since I've been on campus has been a minister, and <laughs> including myself. And I just like, yeah, the Lord must be trying to tell you something, brother. Uh, I didn't see if uh, I didn't I didn't see if if he ever went into the ministry or not. But I I got more exposure to uh, uh, multiculturalism. Largely because the chancellor was trying to make it a diverse campus. And uh, there was a technical college just up the street. And that technical college was competition for students. You know, and eventually that it, it, it had its own campus. And now the campus looks just as good as the campus I attended at my alma mater. But anyway. So by those standards, I I went to predominantly, I lived in predominantly black neighborhood. I went to predominantly black schools for secondary and post-secondary education. I'm a part of uh, predominantly black 
religious denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So by all those standards, if you were to check out, check off, I'm black. I like watermelon. I like chicken and all that stuff. I listen to hip-hop. You know, I, I grew up with the, the 90s hip-hop, the late 80s hip-hop. And I, after that, I just kind of waned. Um, I listened to jazz, you know, even. I, I didn't really care for Kenny G. <laughs> I listened to it. So by those standards, I would be considered black straight down. But if I were to voice something that didn't sound black enough, for example, when it came to, uh, when it comes to certain social, thing, I'm like Chris Rock. I'm, I'm liberal on some things and I'm conservative on other things. When it comes to some social issues and social concerns, I'm a bit more conservative, largely because I, I believe that, you know, th some things just need to stay as they are. That's just it, you know. And then when it comes to other things, I'm a little bit more liberal. You, you you know, you're talking to someone, you're listening to someone who engages persons of that are really, some people say I shouldn't engage in. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm an advocate, not just for gun violence prevention because I've been directly impacted by gun violence, but I'm an advocate because I also understand when it comes to, you know, for transgenders, persons of trans, uh, I don't even know what to call them, uh, the LGBTQ plus community. I advocate with them on some issues because when it comes to discrimination, no person should be discriminated against. And when when the states were passing and the South were passing a lot of this so-called uh, religious liberty or religious freedom or whatever kind of legislation, you know, that was given basically state-sanctioned discrimination, I, I was opposed to it because, like, that's not one, not the role of the state. The state is not to uh, legislate morality. That's not the state. We don't have the authority to do so. And that's just where I stand. Even though, you know, on some issues when it comes to uh, some legislation, I, you know, I prove that. But anyway, so by by those standards, I'm not black. I'm, I'm not black. And that grieves me because if you step out of the line and you say, for example, the, 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 uh, one of the things that a lot of conservative people would say about blacks is, is it used to be that they're lazy and they just not, they need to stop being lazy. Of course, we know that is not true. The other thing is they used to say, well, you know, they just don't want to do it. And not not lazy. They just they'll be saying like they just they gotta pull themselves up by their own bootstrap. And I'm like, well, yeah, you you can do that, but you still need some assistance. Some, not a lot, but some. You know, I didn't get to I didn't get to where I am by my own. I had plenty of help from my community. I had plenty of help from um, non people, non black people who who invested in me greatly and I'm very grateful for their investment in me because of what they saw and what I couldn't see they saw. So when it comes to this idea of black efficacy, the, the narrative that is presented to a lot of white people is that black folk 
just don't have the means to do it or if they don't if they do have the means the means are limited the resources are limited and it's now our responsibility to help them get there and there's some truth to that there there's some truth I, I live in a neighborhood right now where we could use more community development we could use more infrastructure development we really could we could use more uh people coming in and investing into this community right but at the same time people are not going to want to invest if there's a lot of gun violence they're not going to want to come in and you know uh, if they know that they can rent houses they can remodel houses rent them out and they don't have people who can be stable enough to to keep those houses or the people know that this ain't their house so they ain't got to take care of it they're not going to upkeep it so they're not going to make the investment and that's, that's troubling to me. And I'm not just talking about non-black people. I'm talking about even our own black folk. You know, we don't want to make the investment into our own communities. We've been divesting out of communities for the last two or three decades. Largely as we get upward mobility, we, you know, we move out of the community and we go out into the suburbs and, and all of that uh, or in the country. And I, I just think about it's all about when Trump made his remarks about the suburbs. He made this tweet about the suburbs being safe, uh, being safer now, or whatever he said. And it made me think about uh, how over the last, uh, at least the last 25 years, last quarter of a decade, there's been more black flight than white flight. And yes, you don't have to believe in white flight. It, it's it's very real. Very, very real. <laughs> and, yes, there's data to support that. White flight is as real as it comes. But at the same time, black flight is real also. I, I go back to, I come back to the community where I live and where I pastor. Most of my members do not live in the community where the church is located. But at one time, most of my members lived within the community where the church is located. Most of them. And, you know, and some of them still own property and maintain their property as best they can. But for the most part, they ventured out. You know, they progressed out. And there's nothing wrong with that. You should do that. However, when, when we look at the condition of the community now versus I saw pictures of what it looked like. 40 years ago how thriving it looked how beautiful the homes were and how well maintained and how proud these people were and I look at it now and you know, I basically you know the the homeowners you could tell who owns their home and you could tell the ones who just live in there because the homeowners their property is almost immaculate you know immaculate you can you know, they, they put great effort and to making sure that their property looks well, is well maintained, and all of that. Whereas those who just live there, you can also tell. You see the broken down cars in front of the house that been there for uh, uh, months or years, and they ain't doing nothing to make it better. Or you can see the ill repair of the property, and that's just as bad. So this idea of efficacy, the, the, the narrative is 
pushed by both sides. Black folk think that some there are some black folk who are, have begun become conditioned to believe that I'm it's not gonna get any better. I can't do it. And these more the younger the young people who are living in these urban centers there where resources are very very limited. And because of the blight of the of their community and the limitation of resources, their view of what they are able to do is very, very small, very, very small, limited, restrictive, and constrained. And so the few who break out of that, they get mocked for doing it. You know, you get the the uh, the, the the student who wants to excel. Get mocked for wanting to be smart, and that's why a lot of black students underperform. Why, why, why will I perform better if I'm going to get teased for it? Now, there's some different variations on that because when you look at black women and black girls, that there's exception. Black women are more likely to be uh, successful academically than they are to be uh, anything else. And you have, matter of fact, some statistics suggest that black women are the most educated of all ethnic groups. You know, and that could be the case because we push black, we're pushing black women to achieve and we're pushing black men to underachieve. I don't understand why we do this. And I'm talking about we because that's what it is. Uh, we allow our young black men and young black boys underperform until it leads them into chaos, until it leads them to either death or jail. And then we cry because we see their potential, and now it has to be reformed. So, um, and that's... That that's more into the idea of social efficacy, the idea that uh, as a collective group, we 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 can determine our behaviors and our outcomes. But the the thing is, we have to we have to buy into something different than the narrative that's presented to us by non-whites, non-blacks. Uh, the narrative of uh, impoverishment, the narrative of underachievement, the narrative of success only within certain areas. We have to break that. And when I say we have to break it, we must break it. But anyway, I, I've run out of time. I, I'm going to have to come back to this subject. And um, I'm going to have to make sure that uh, I get somebody else to have dialogue with if I can find someone. Anyway, but I hope that you enjoyed the show. Anyway, uh, let me know what you think. Um, please be sure to go to uh, the Facebook page, Zero Network on Facebook. Like that page. Follow and listen to archived shows. Also, uh, you can listen to this program broadcast on all of your podcast outlets, Apple, Apple iTunes, Google uh, uh, Podcasts. iHeartRadio, we're available on all those outlets. And um, also, if you think it's not robbery, go to patreon.com slash Lorenzo T. Neal and support me for as little as a dollar a month. And I got to update that because I haven't done anything. I'm trying to be more, uh, I I keep saying this, but I'm I'm trying to do more to make the show a little prosperous. But uh, consider becoming a patron and supporting me, uh, the show, to make it successful. And as always, we just thank you for listening. 
thank you for tuning in and uh, we'll be back next time next week with another great installment of zero today god bless you god keep you Thank <laughs> you.